this is our fifth week in a series of conversations we've called Set Sail because we're using sailing as an image for our spiritual lives. When you sail, your, your progress, your journey is powered by the wind. It's fueled by the wind and your participation with the wind. And in the same way, our spiritual lives are fueled, they're powered by the work of the Spirit in us, we don't make any progress emotionally and spiritually without the movement of the Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit. But we have to learn, it's not just that, we have to learn how to participate with the movement of the Spirit in our lives. And there are, there are themes, there are habits that help us participate with the Spirit, that, that enable that work in our lives, that enable us to make progress. We've gone over four of those habits, and today we'll discuss a fifth one. But before we start, I want to read, uh, a, really, an epic section of Scripture from the Old Testament prophet Amos. Then I'm going to explain the context of that, because it just highlights the importance of this passage and what's going on in Amos' mind and heart. And then I'm going to talk about some of the lessons that fall out of Amos' passage for us, and they're pretty poignant. I mean, he, he steps on our toes. He especially steps on the toes of uh, wealthy suburban northern Virginians. Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 and 5, 18 through 24, and we will, in a sense, survey the prophet Amos briefly this morning. So let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm going to be referencing this a few times uh, back. I'll, I'll, I'll reference back to this as, as we walk through this. And I'd love for you to have your Bible open or have your Bible app open. I'm going to be reading from the screen this morning. Acts 2, 6 through 8 first. This is what the Lord says, Amos announces. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. I love this uh, prophetic language. That's just kind of a, uh, a neat and toe-stepping way of saying that, isn't it? They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Ooh. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Okay, now let's go to chapter 5. We'll skip forward a little bit in Amos. 5, 18 through 24. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, remember that phrase. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light, parentheses, for you. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. 
Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a a never-failing stream. Father, uh, we are gathered again, offering all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. We pray this morning that you would open our chests and break our hearts with the things that break your heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So if you had to make a list of things that are most important to God, listen, a list of things that are most important to God, uh, our topic today would definitely be in the top five, maybe the top three. That's why you and I cannot build a healthy spiritual connection without attending to this habit in our lives. And the habit is, Opening our lives to people in need. Opening our lives to people in need. Let's go eighth grade French class again. We're going to say that together on three. I'm going to say one, two, three, and you're going to say open our lives to people in need. One, two, three. Very good, students. Now, look, let me give you the context for this, and I'm going to show you a map of the area of the world that we're talking about. I hope you can see that. I, Try to identify Kingdom of Israel, little line below it, Kingdom of Judah. You see Ammon, uh, Damascus, uh, Moab, Edom surrounding it. Uh, there to the left side of the screen, the Mediterranean Sea, obviously, we're, we're in ancient Israel. The, the passage from Amos was written in the middle of the 8th century B.C., so 800 years before Jesus, uh, by Amos, who was a shepherd and farmer from the southern kingdom the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah. Identify that. Here's the thing. Judah and Israel were both populated by descendants of the people that Moses led out of Egypt. So they were both Jews by heritage and culture. They had at one time been united in one kingdom under, the, under kings uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, but they had separated during a violent civil war at the end of Solomon's reign. During the subsequent years, they were sometimes, the years that followed that, they were sometimes friends and allies and sometimes more often bitter enemies. And during the period of Amos' preaching, Jeroboam II was the king of Israel. His reign lasted from 788 to 748 BC. So again, Amos is from Judah and he's going to preach to Israel. Now, during the years of Jeroboam II's reign, the nation was in a period of economic growth and expansion during his early years. Those were boom years. In the previous century before Jeroboam, Israel had been attacked, her borders had shrunk, and her economy had shriveled. But under Jeroboam II, she had expanded even beyond her original territory, and the economy was growing rapidly. So again, these were boom years, early years of Jeroboam. But the second half of Jeroboam's reign was not as successful. Israel's territory was literally threatened on every side. Decline and recession were in full swing. And as conditions grew worse, the economic gap between the ruling class and everyone else grew larger and larger. And most importantly, there was rampant spiritual decay in the land. Into this political and social and economic climate of decay, God sent a blue-collar country bumpkin Judite to speak to the places of power in Israel. Amos shared a language with the Israelites, and in theory, they both worshiped Yahweh. 
but that theory was far from reality. There was actually rampant worship of other gods in Israel, even in the seats of power, maybe especially in the seats of power. So Amos felt called by God to announce God's dissatisfaction with the northern kingdom. He told them that judgment was coming if they didn't change their hearts and their ways and turn back to God. And as you might imagine, that message was not well received. We should note that after the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel quickly, shockingly, and irretrievably slid toward demise. This demise was completely unexpected, unexpected unless you had listened to the prophet Amos and his message. Amos had made it clear that Israel would be overrun and destroyed by the Assyrians, and that's exactly what happened. In 722 B.C., within 30 years of Amos' prophecy, think of that expansion and growth to utter, dest utter destruction in one generation. Now, if you read the whole book of Amos, you'll see that he began his speaking tour by preaching against the, the nations surrounding Israel. This would have played very well to his audience. But pretty quickly, he turned his attention to Israel itself. And in Amos 2, 6 through 8, Amos denounced them for mistreatment of the poor, weird perversions of sexual and romantic relationships, and idolatry. Sounds a bit like the country we're living in. But the real emphasis throughout Amos' teaching, the real emphasis is on the first one of these transgressions on their mistreatment of the poor. Now look, opening our lives to people in need is not just about economic justice for the financially poor, but we really should recognize that that, that specific kind of need received a lot of attention from the prophets and from Jesus. I mean, Amos is not alone in sounding this theme, not by a long shot. In fact, if we trace this through Scripture, we find it's clearly one of God's favorite topics, as I said. From Moses, from the Psalms, from nearly every prophet, we hear that the poor must be cared for. For example, we read about specific provisions that were to be taken by all Israelites to ensure that the poor were fed adequately. Plus, there were constitutional guarantees within Israel's constitution against, that, that, that guarded against generational poverty, including absolute forgiveness of all debt, imagine that, and all property returning to its original owner every 50 years. God told them that even their religious observances, like feasts and fastings, they were pointless if they didn't take care of the poor. So Amos is not alone. And by the time Amos got to the passage we read this morning, he was in high gear. So in, in chapter 2, verse 6, he declared that the Israelite elites had mistreated the poor. He repeated this in 5, 7, in 5, 11 through 13. And then in 5, 16 and 17, he declared that they would be judged for it. And then he unleashed himself in the second passage we read this morning. So, there are at least five important points that Amos wants to make sure that we get from this part of his message. And these points, they really underscore the importance of this habit in our lives. So five kind of points, and then we will apply those points, or we'll try. 
Number one thing that Amos wants us to get, don't miss this. God will assess our behavior. In Amos 2.6, God says he will not turn back his wrath. In other words, he's going to deliver the punishment that their transgressions deserved. And in 5.21, he made his attitude clear, right? God said, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. He had assessed them, and it wasn't good. If you need motivation to add this habit to your thinking, look no further. Now, the idea that God will assess our behavior is not, is not a popular idea in spiritual settings these days. Uh, some of us like to imagine God as a bigger, maybe many of us, like to imagine God as a bigger, better version of ourselves. And we think our best selves we would be kind to everyone. There, there would be no need for punishment. So this must be how God feels. I want to suggest this idea is terribly naive. I read an article recently, written by an atheist, by the way, that uh, has, has made the point, he was lamenting the fact that we as a culture had not learned the right lessons from the 20th century. The author was arguing that we still nurture the naive, his word, idea that, that we're all okay and that we really deserve to be given the benefit of the doubt. And then he traced uh, the, the, the effect of Hitler and Stalin and uh, Cambodia's brutal dictator, Pol Pot, to make the point that there is evil in the world that deserves to be punished. God will assess our behavior this idea, of course, is in keeping with a God who is just, and he is. And it's clearly a recurring theme in the Bible. Even in the New Testament, God will judge us. Second point that Amos begs us not to miss, at least part of the standard for assessing our behavior, part of what God will use as the measuring stick, will be how we have treated the poor and needy. Verses 2, 6, and 7, God explained his anger. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. That's Amos' point. God is going to bring judgment against us because we have treated the poor very badly. In our case, I suspect this would mostly be through neglect. Uh, some of you may have already realized that Jesus makes this same point in a very powerful, poignant way. And I want you to see this. Mike, bring up Matthew 25, 31 through 40 on the screen. I'm just going to ask you to read through it, Mike, and, and press forward when you get to the end. What I want you to see here is some of some of you will be familiar with this. This is Jesus' imagery about judgment, about assessing our behavior. Uh, this is what I really want you to see. I was hungry. You gave me something. Thirsty, naked, you helped me. The righteous will answer, when did we do that, Lord? When, when did we see you hungry, thirsty? And this is it. Look at verse 38. When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you sick or in prison? The king will reply, and it's king represented the Lord. Tell you the truth, 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. That's the degree to which Jesus identifies with the poor and needy. The third thing Amos does not want us to miss is hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor and needy is a false hope. Hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor and needy is a false hope. Might give me the scripture 18 through 20, if you would, the next. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for? That day's going to be darkness, not light. It'll be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house, rest his hand on the wall, got bit by a snake. Here's the point. The day of the Lord was a popular prophetic language at the time for the time when God comes, when he intervenes in human history. That language gets ultimately tied to, you know, Jesus ultimately coming again and wrapping all things up. But the day of the Lord was a, was a coming and intervening of the Lord, and don't we all long for that? Think of it like, you know, in our day, think of it almost like uh, Christmas Day. You know, you, you can think of that as an image for all good things. Well, that, that's gonna, I can't wait. That's going to be like Christmas. We would understand that if someone used that phrase, and, and uh, even uh, more consistently, this phrase was used in prophetic contexts in the Old Testament. But for those who do not attend to the poor and needy, this will not be a good day. The day of the Lord will be a time of judgment, hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor is a false hope. The fourth thing Amos wants to make sure that we won't, don't get, we won't spend much time with this, we've just made the point, but hoping that our religion will help us, or even hoping that God cares at all about our religiousness when we don't care for the poor and needy is a false hope. Remember, he said, I, despise, I, I hate your religious feasts. I, I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Uh, and then the fifth thing Amos wants to make sure we get, our God is a God of justice. And he wants to see our lives and our habits reflect his justice. He expects us to open our lives to people in need. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness, like a never-failing stream. The word justice here in uh, 524 is a Hebrew word, mishpath. It usually referred to acts of deciding a case. And usually rightly deciding the case was implied. This is a reference to the legal process in court and in your legal proceedings and in your legal dealings with one another. You must decide rightly. The word righteousness translates the Hebrew word tzedek. It suggests truthfulness in your word, being ethically right, being fair in all of your dealings with others, even-handed with all, or applying God's standard in, in dealings with others. One commentary explained it all this way. Justice would mean reparation for the defrauded, fairness for the less fortunate, and dignity and compassion for the needy. Righteousness would entail attitudes of mercy and generosity and honest dealings that imitate the character of God, especially as revealed in the law of Moses, end quote. Our God is a God of justice and righteousness. He wants to see that character displayed in us. He expects our lives to be open to those in need. 
So bring up that next slide, Mike. Here are five points. God will assess everyone's behavior, at least part of that assessment. The standard of it will be how we've treated the poor, hoping that God will intervene on our behalf when we don't intervene for the poor and needy is a false hope. Hoping that our religion will help us, or even hoping that God cares at all for our religious observance when we don't care for the poor and needy is a false hope. Our God is a God of justice, and he wants to see our lives and our habits reflect his justice. He expects us to open our lives to people in need. The mystery writer Dorothy Sayers was also a devoted Christian. I don't know if you know that name, but uh, she was for, she for a while churned out popular mysteries. She offered one of the most compelling explanations of the moral law of God that I've ever heard. She pointed out that in our society, there are two kinds of laws. There's the law of the stop sign, and there's the law of the fire. Let me explain. The law of the stop sign is a law that identifies when traffic is heavy on a certain street, and as a result of the police department or the city council, they decide, as a result of that, they decide to erect the stop sign. They can also decide if you run that stop sign, it will cost you. Remember, her illustration comes from many years ago, but she said, it will cost you $25 or more. If the traffic changes, they can up the ante so that the fine becomes $50 or $75, which was exorbitant for Dorothy Sayers. Or they build a highway around the city, they can take the stop sign down or, or reduce the penalty, making it only $10 if you go through it. The police department or city council controls the law of the stop sign. But then she said there's also the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says, if you put your hand in the fire, you'll get burned. Now imagine that all of the legislatures of all the nations of the world gathered in one great assembly, and they voted unanimously that from here on out, fire would no longer burn. The first man or woman who left that assembly and put his or her hand in the fire would discover that the law of the fire is different from the law of the stop sign. Bound up in the nature of fire itself is the penalty for abusing it. So Dorothy Sayer says, the moral law of God is like the law of the fire. You never break God's law, you just break yourself on them. God can't reduce the penalty because the penalty for breaking the law is bound up in the law itself. God's demand for justice, his universal system of justice works just this way. And our treatment of those in need is a part of God's law. It does not matter how busy we are or how important our jobs may be, God's law stands. So our spiritual health depends on our compliance. We need this habit in our lives. So what? Uh, how do we apply this? What does this look like? Uh, I'm going to uh, step away from my thoughts for just a second. And this occurred to me this morning as I was thinking about this on my way here. I'm going to try to uh, be, I'm, I'm going to intentionally, this, I'm going to put Ed hat on. So I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to speak for God at this point. I want you to assess what I'm about to say. 
stand back from it. I'm expecting to upset a few of us, actually trying to. Uh, I suspect concerning this habit, opening our lives to people in need, I, I suspect that, especially right now in the politically and socially charged atmosphere of the United States of America, I suspect that most of us, maybe all of us, get this wrong a little bit. I think attitudinally, attitudinally, those of us who are, let's say, social and political liberals, those of us who lean left, and there are a few of us here, those of us who lean left, we get this more right. I'm trying to step on uh, the toes of those of us who are conservative. We get this more right. By instinct, those of us who, who lean left, we, our hearts bleed for the, that that's the, in that the proverbial criticism, the bleeding heart liberal. Our, our hearts bleed for the underdog, for those who are left, less fortunate. We get this more right. And in the way that we talk about the poor and entitlement programs and immigration, the way we talk about that is more God-honoring. Here's the problem with those of us who lean left, that those of us who lean right get exactly right. Those of us who lean left think that the solution lies in the government. Amos is not talking to the government. Amos is talking to Diane and I. Amos is talking to you. Amos is talking to us as a church. We are God's solution to this. And, and those of us who lean right tend to get that more right, that part of it. So what? Four ideas that could help us keep our lives open to God. Maybe five. These, these are meant as suggestions for you and I. You may have others. Number one, make a plan to give away more this year than you did last year. Make a plan as an individual or as a family to give away more this year than you did last year. Give away more to God-honoring causes. Basil the Great, you've heard me use this quote before, the theologian and bishop of modern-day Turkey in the fourth century after Jesus. He said this, the bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. The extra garment hanging in your wardrobe? Anybody got any extras that you haven't worn in the last three years? The extra garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who's naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. The money you keep locked away is money of the poor. Give away more this year than you did last year. Plan to do it. Second, Suggestion for you, for us. As a family or as an individual, use some holiday time during this next year to serve the needy. If you'd like some helpful suggestions, we can give you some. A day off, a holiday, a federal holiday, Thanksgiving or Christmas, or part of your summer vacation. Use it to serve the needy, to get your heart 24 inches away from someone who's in desperate need. It will change you. 
Spring break, Thanksgiving, Christmas, summer vacation, homeless shelter, food bank, walk for some cause. I spoke with someone recently who used a long weekend a few years ago to visit a child that they support. I spoke to someone else this week who has used their summertime to invite a young relative who is at risk into their home. This challenge is especially the case if you have children. Let them see you open your home, your home, and your life, and your pocketbook to those in need. Three weeks ago, I got a a text from a, a pastor from Pakistan who is now in this country and uh, desperately needy family had made their way uh, through um, several countries, came legally, and they've come to the United States, and they don't have anywhere to sleep. Do you have anyone, Pastor Ed, who has an extra bedroom? I was sick on the couch at the time, and by the time I responded, the need had already been met. I don't know what I would have said. I don't know who I could have asked But what I could have said was, I've got a congregation full of people with an extra bedroom. Third, go on a short-term mission trip this year. There's an interest meeting today. That was intended to make you feel a little guilty. Go on a short-term mission trip, whatever your excuse is right now. Kids, take them. It'll change their lives for the better. I don't have time this summer. Why? Because of Disney World? Go on a short-term mission trip. Fourth, also designed to make you feel guilty. Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, Pray for God to bring someone with need that you can meet into your life. Pray for that. Pray for, begin to pray for God to bring someone with deep need into your life, deep need that you can meet. Uh, about uh, three months ago, a few months ago, any, uh, weeks and weeks ago, before the first of the year, um, someone asked me to go to, uh, we met for coffee, and uh, just want to talk. We sat down, um, I, I mean, it took 10 minutes, longer than that, 15, 20 minutes before I realized the point of the conversation, and I tried several different ways to ask really nicely. We're making small talk. Why are we here? Not that abruptly. And finally, um, look, Uh, I have been really blessed, and uh, my wife and I want to invest. And we'd like to invest big. All I'm asking is that that, uh, someone just really wants to see the trajectory of their life change, and I'd like to make that happen. Um, And I'm willing to make a really serious financial investment. Uh, Do you know anyone? Well, um, I have pastored, I'm intending this next statement to step on all of our toes, mine included. I have pastored in the wealthiest county in America for the last 175 years. And that is the second time someone has said that to me. Now, I know that some of you are, have been really good at just finding that on your own. You don't have to come to me with that. Uh, and I know others of you are, you're young and you're just getting started. You don't have that kind of discretionary income yet. But come on, twice in 175 years? 
This is only the second time in my ministry that someone had asked me that question. I'm certainly not saying that means that everyone else is selfishly ignoring the poor. Perhaps you've got your own ways, but that seems conspicuously few times to me. Pray that God would bring someone in, with need that you can meet into your life this year. Start praying that. And last, if you're discouraged about your finances today, resist financial fear. If you're discouraged, resist financial fear. Fear causes you to shrink and close your hands. It inhibits God's ability to flow through you. Don't allow your hands to close up. Ambrose was a Theologian and church leader also from the 4th century, he wrote this, There is your brother naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. That was written in the 4th century, <laughs> right? We don't change a lot. Look, this is work we must do. This is part of effective spiritual sailing. We must be intentional about it, first of all, because we have so many resources to bring to the cause of justice. Secondly, we must be intentional because we live extremely insulated lives. We live very, very insulated lives. We have to be intentional, or there won't even be opportunity for our lives to be open to the poor. We have almost completely removed ourselves from poverty just by virtue of where we live, we don't like to be another kind of poverty. We don't like, for instance, to be around grief unless we have to. Our lives are very insulated. For many of us, we often console ourselves. Even when faced with need within our own extended family, we remind ourselves of their bad choices, as if that exonerates us from having to help. We must keep our eyes and hearts open to the needs around us. I want you to know, uh, some of you may have heard this before, it's, it's famous when uh, Christians talk about justice, and we should regularly. Julian was the emperor of Rome from 360 to 363 AD, right after Constantine. And he, he tried, Constantine had made Christianity the, the legal religion of Rome. Julian tried to revive paganism. He once wrote a famous letter to his pagan priest in which he said this, it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, that the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Therefore, all people see that our people lack aid from us, and they run to the Christians. That habit is why the Jesus movement exploded in the centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection. For American Christians, it's, it's often the case when, when we are concerned about outsiders at all, it's because we feel the need to judge their behavior, not to meet their need. Little wonder the Jesus movement is not exploding here. But make no mistake, people who have the heart of Jesus are people whose lives are wide open to the neediest I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Let's pray. I want to ask again, Jesus, that you would break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Stir us into action. 
uh, Father, I, I'm thinking now, uh, we recognize this is, a, this is a complicated conversation because we're not, you know, I, I remember one time, Jesus, you saying, you're going to always have the poor. They're going to be, the poor are always going to be with you. We can't solve this problem. Nor are we supposed to exhaust ourselves and our, our loved ones trying to solve this problem. But there are needs, and we have resources, great resources, that can be used to step into the gap in meeting those needs. And I pray. Jesus, that you would call us appropriately this year to step into places of need. I pray that you would present us this week with practical steps in our lives, routines maybe, habits, disciplines that we can form that would move us toward this theme in our lives of opening our hearts to people in need. I pray for specific steps that you would lay those on our, our hearts and minds as families, as individuals, Lord, that we would move toward those in need. Selfishly, we know when we do, it animates our hearts and our lives and the wind of the Spirit blows through us. We, we advance. We advance. And it's just the case, Lord, that so many times our lives feel shriveled up because they've become so insular, so insulated. Open us up to people in need. We pray. We pray. 